So we have been studying through Paul's letter to the Galatians here on Sunday mornings for the past couple weeks. And you know, Galatians is really one of my favorite books of the Bible. Because Galatians is a book that brings us face to face with the gospel. And, uh, and it brings us face to face with the implications of the gospel for our lives. And what we find when we study Galatians, when we study the gospel is this. That at the very heart of the gospel is a concept called grace. Now if you would imagine with me for just a moment that you're driving around in town one day and you get pulled over by the police. And the officer comes up to your window and he says, good afternoon, and he asks you for your documents and he says, I pulled you over because you were speeding. So he checks your license and he checks your registration and he writes you a ticket for speeding. That is what we call justice, right? You deserve that because you broke the law. Well, just imagine what, if hap what happens if the officer comes up to your window and instead of writing you a ticket, he says, you know what, I'm in a good mood today and today I'm going to let you off with a warning. That is what we call mercy. He didn't give you that which you fully deserved. But imagine now that as you're sitting in the car and you look in your rearview mirror and you see this officer coming up to your window, you realize that the officer is actually your father. And you think, man, I'm busted and he comes up to your window and he sees that it's you he realizes it's you his son that he's pulled over and what does he say he says son you broke the law and I've got to write you a ticket son because you broke the law and the law has a penalty but listen I know that you can't afford to pay this fine so I'm going to take this ticket and I'm going to pay it for you and not only that but I'm going to take you out to lunch too that my friends is grace Grace is where love and justice meet. Grace is God's provision for you. It's provision that you don't deserve. It's provision that you could never afford, that you could never merit. Grace is not based on merit. Think of the story of the police officer I just told. The father's love for his child is not contingent on whether or not the son keeps the law. It's independent of that. Grace is what happens when love and justice meet. Yet there's a problem, right? Because if the son breaks the law, then someone has to pay the penalty. And that's where grace comes in. Not only does it pay the penalty, but it gives so much more on top of that. And that is the story of the gospel. That each and every one of us, what we deserve is judgment. We've sinned. We've fallen short of the glory of God. We've done hurtful, destructive things. And sin separates us from a holy and perfect God. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death eternally. But God, because of his great love for us, even though we didn't deserve it, he came and he took the penalty for our sins upon himself. He paid the price for us. But he didn't stop there. Not only did he pay our debt, but he wiped our record clean. He went into the computer and pushed delete on our record. He wiped our record clean. Not only did he wipe our record clean, but he invited us to the table to have intimate fellowship with him. And not only did he invite us to his table, but he adopted us and made us his children and made us heirs of his riches and gave us a new name and a new future. That is the gospel of grace. The gospel of grace is the theme of this letter to the Galatians. Paul is writing this letter to show us that every blessing 
that God pours out on us, every blessing that we experience in our lives, they're not because of our merits or our performance, but they are only because of his grace. Every blessing. We're justified before God, not, only be, not because of what we do, but because of what was done for us by Christ on the cross. He took our place. He traded places with us. Jesus took our place before God so that we might take his place before God. The Son of God became a man so that the sons of men might become sons of God. The Son of Man died on a cross that the sons of men might live forever. The Son of God took the curse of sin that we might receive the reward of his righteousness. That is the promise of the gospel. And the only thing that is left for us to do is to believe the promise. The promise is that Jesus accomplished everything. And because of what Jesus accomplished through his life and his death and his resurrection, you can be forgiven. You can be accepted by God. You can be blessed by God. And when this life is over, God will gather you to himself and he will take you to that place where he is to be there forever. That place which is perfection, which you long for in the deepest part of your soul. That is the promise of the gospel. The only thing left to do with a promise is you either believe it or you don't. You believe a promise or you don't believe a promise. You don't have to earn a promise because that's the point. It's a promise. It's contingent not on the one who receives the promise but on the one who gives the promise whether he is faithful or not. That's the gospel of grace. And to drive this point home about the promise of the gospel, Paul has taken us back here in Galatians chapter 3 where we left off last week. He takes us back to Abraham, the father of faith. He takes us back to the book of Genesis. And Paul points out to us that Abraham was declared righteous by God. Why was he declared righteous? Was it because of anything that Abraham did? No. Was it because, of, because Abraham kept the law of God? No, actually, in fact, that's what's interesting about Abraham is that he lived before the law was given. He didn't have ten commandments in his day. They came hundreds of years later. So Abraham was not declared righteous because of his following of the law, but because he received the promise of God. Abraham wasn't saved because of anything he did. He was simply chosen by God. He was blessed by God, not because of his own works or merits, just because of the goodness and the grace of God. He was justified by faith. That's what we've been talking about here in Galatians. To be justified means to be made righteous. Abraham wasn't righteous on his own, but God made him righteous. God declared him righteous. In spite of all his sins, in spite of all his shortcomings, in spite of the fact that he didn't deserve it, that he didn't earn it, and the reality of Abraham's faith in the promise of God was seen, was evident in the way that he lived his life. God made Abraham a great promise. He said, Abe, if you'll take my hand and walk with me, I'll make you into a great nation. He said, I will, I, I will give you so many descendants that they will be as innumerable as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. He says, Abe, I will give you a homeland and in you, every nation of the world will be blessed. In your seed, I will bless all the nations of the world. 
Abraham said, right on. And God said, you're righteous. And that's the model for how God deals with you and I as well. Justification by faith. But here's the thing, though. The thing is that grace is actually a very hard thing for people to accept. Grace is a hard thing for us to swallow. It's a hard pill to swallow because it's very humbling. It says that there is nothing that you can do to make God love you more. There's nothing you can do to earn or merit his favor in your life. It, it humbles you. It says you don't deserve anything, but if you will receive it, here's the promise of God. And you know what's interesting is that it's actually, grace is actually a hard thing for many Christians to accept. And that's what's interesting here because Paul is writing this letter to a group of Christians who, although they got saved through faith in the promise of God, now they're trying to perfect themselves by keeping the law. They're trying to be sanctified in their own works. They're trying to advance in the Christian life, in the spiritual life, through their own works, through the keeping of laws, through religion and religiosity. You know, there's this stubborn tendency that we have to revert into legalism in regard to God. We strive to earn God's favor. We strive to merit God's blessings rather than simply receiving his grace graciously and resting in the finished work of Christ on the cross. Paul calls that living according to the law rather than living according to grace. And the message of Galatians is that we should live as if the gospel is really true. You should live as if the gospel is really true. If Christ's work on the cross is truly complete, then stop trying to earn God's favor by the things that you do, by your own works, by keeping of the law. If God is truly satisfied with you because of Christ Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross, then live like that's actually true. And that's why he says in chapter 5, verse 1, he says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. He's saying this, in Christ you are justified before God. You are free from a legal relationship with God because all the legal requirements of the law were met fully by Jesus on your behalf. Therefore, don't revert anymore back into legalism. You have become a son of God through faith in Christ Jesus. You are fully loved and fully accepted. Don't revert anymore back into a slave relationship with God, trying to earn his love and earn his acceptance by your performance. That's what we've been talking about here in Galatians. But you know, here's the thing, is that that actually raises some questions. And if you're a careful reader of, of the Bible or a, a careful thinker, I'm sure that you've thought about this before. The question is this, well then, what is the purpose of the law? If we're not saved by the law, if we're set free from the law in Christ, then what place does the law have in the gospel life? And that's what we're going to talk about today. Just the other day, I, I was talking to a woman who, who recently became a Christian here at church. And, and, and she asked me a question. She said, well, I've been curious about this listening to you preach about grace. She said, if we're saved by grace because of what Jesus did for us and not because of what we do for him, then what is the point of the Ten Commandments? I mean, does that mean that God doesn't care at all if we obey him or not? Right? Because if you haven't noticed, a pretty good chunk of the Bible is taken up with the law of God. Like a decent amount of the Bible, right? 
So apparently that's kind of important to him. And commandments are, you know, the Bible's full of these commandments about what to do and what not to do. And if you disobey God, well, that's called sin. And that's what got us in this whole mess to begin with. So it can't be that God just doesn't care whether we obey him or not. And the question has to be this. What role does the law have in the life of a believer who's been born again through faith in Christ? Do we just cast it out completely? What do we do with it? What is the purpose of the law? To some people, it might even appear as if God changed his mind at some point. Like, he had this whole law thing set up, and then he thought, you know what, I can do better than this. Let me think of something else. At one point, he gives us the Ten Commandments, but then here in the New Testament, we're told to put our faith in Jesus, not in how well we keep the commandments, right? We're told that we're no longer under the law. We're told that we've actually been set free from it. So how does this all work? And what place, if any, does the law have in the gospel life? That's the question that Paul is answering here in our text today in Galatians chapter 3. And here's how we're going to break it down. We're going to first talk about laws and promises. Then we're going to talk about the purpose of the law. And then we're going to go on and talk about slaves and sons. Okay? Laws and promises, the purpose of the law, and slaves and sons. Let's begin by talking about laws and promises and read from verse 15 of chapter 3. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. And this is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. There's a fundamental difference between a law and a promise. They, they function differently. A promise, for a promise to bring its result... It only needs to be believed. But for a law to bring its result, it has to be obeyed. The fulfillment of a promise hinges on the one who gave the promise, whether or not they are faithful to their word and whether or not they come through on what they said they would. But the fulfillment of a law hinges on the ability of the one who receives the law to obey it, right? What Paul's pointing out here is this. God's promise of salvation to Abraham. The promise that all of the world will be blessed by his seed, which, which Paul points out is Jesus Christ. That came 430 years before the law of Moses and the Ten Commandments. And here's what that means for you and me. It means that the law of God, the commandments, they were never intended to be a way of salvation. I want to say that again because this is really important. The law and the commandments were never intended to be a means of salvation, a merit system. That's important. That's what Paul's saying here. The original and only way that anyone has ever been saved by God eternally and blessed by God in this life is not because of their adherence to the law, not because of their performance, but only by the grace of God. That's what Paul's pointing out to us here. Because if the law, which was given more than 400 years after God's promise to Abraham, was intended as a way of salvation, then you know what that means? That means 
that God changed his mind. That he made a promise to Abraham, this is how I'm going to save you. But then he changed his mind a little while later and said, well, I'm going to try something else now. See, here's the thing. It, it would mean that God had decided that, he, that we didn't actually need a savior. That we didn't actually need the seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ. And that God would, in fact, bless people on the basis of their performance and not on the basis of a promise. In other words, it would mean this. God broke his promise to Abraham. One of the attributes of God that we find in his word is this, that he is unchanging. God is unchanging. In theological terms, we call this the immutability of God. The immutability of God, which is defined this way. God is unchanging in his character, will, and covenants. The Bible says that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. James says that in God there is no variation or shadows due to change. In other words, he's not a shady, shadowy, shifty God. In Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, we read this. God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and he will not do it, or has he spoken and he will not fulfill it? You see, the reason why Paul is saying this, and the reason why it's important is this. If God made a covenant with Abraham and promised to save him and bless him through this promised seed, Jesus Christ, and then a little while later comes back and changes his mind and says, never mind, you know, forget the promise. I've got a better idea. Keep these 10 rules. And if you do it well enough, then I'll bless you and I'll save you. Sound good? Well, if he did that, here's the point. That would mean that he broke his promise to Abraham. And God can't do that, right? If God did that, then he's not a faithful God. If God did that, then he is no longer a true God. So the only other option is this that the law was meant for a different purpose altogether. The law was never meant to save anyone. The law was never meant to be a means by which you merit God's love and blessing and acceptance. And what Paul's saying is that these people have misunderstood fundamentally the purpose of the law. He says you, you don't even realize what the purpose of the law is. You're trying to use it for something which God never intended it to be used for. Read with me from verse 19. Why then the law? Right? That's the question we would ask. Well, then what's the law for? If Abraham is a prototype of, of a relationship with God and, and our walk with God is just based on simply believing his promise and receiving it and resting in the finished work of Christ, then why was the law given at all? And that brings us to our second point, the purpose of the law. From verse 19 again, it says it was added because of transgressions. The law was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary applies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness... Uh, would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. 
So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. So here we see what the purpose of the law is. The purpose of the law is to show us how utterly sinful we are and how desperately we need a savior. That's the purpose of the law, to show us how sinful we are, to show us how much we need this promised seed of Abraham, Jesus, to save us. You see, here's the thing. There are so many people out there today, so many of your neighbors and coworkers and friends and, and relatives who really believe that they are good people, right? That they are decent people. And, and maybe even some of you who are sitting here this morning, you're listening to me and you're saying, you know what? I'm a pretty good person. I'm a decent guy. And you know what? I deserve for God to bless me. And you know what? I am confident when I die that I'll go to heaven, you know, because I'm a pretty good person. I haven't done anything all that bad. But here's the purpose of the law and the commandments. God gave the law to be a mirror. He shows us a mirror that says, take a look at yourself. You think you're pretty good, but the truth is you're a mess. Look at yourself. Here is the standard of righteousness. It's perfect. It's simple. Everyone agrees with it. Think about that. Think about the Ten Commandments. Who disagrees with the Ten Commandments? Nobody, right? He says, look, it's simple. Everybody agrees with it. This is the standard of righteousness. But you can't keep it. You're unable to do it, unable to do it. You have fallen short of it. You're a sinner. To the person who would say, I'm not really that bad of a person, the law would say, really? Are you sure? Have you ever taken the name of the Lord in vain? Have you ever used God's name as a curse word? Maybe one time on the golf course when you hit your, or maybe at home when you hit your hand with a hammer on accident, you accidentally said it. Oh, okay. Well, one time. You say, maybe I've done that once or twice. All right. Well, have you ever told a lie? Well, you know, who hasn't told one or two? You know, I don't. I don't make a practice of it. Okay, but you've, you've told a lie, right? How about lust? Men, you don't need to raise your hands, you know? How about the Sabbath? Do you, do you take one day every week and dedicate it to worshiping the Lord and seeking him? Have you been faithful to do that? How about this? Have you ever seen something that someone else had and wished that it was yours? Have you ever seen someone else's house and wished that it was yours? Have you ever seen someone else's spouse and wished that they were yours? Have you ever despised someone? See, this is what the law does. It, it lifts the lid on our integrity. It lifts the lid on, on our lives and shows us who we really are. It lifts the lid on our respectability. The law serves a profoundly important gospel purpose. We're saved by grace through faith, just like Abraham. We're saved by the promised seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ. But the purpose of the law is not to save us. It's not to win God's favor by meriting it. What it does, it lifts the lid on our respectability and shows us what we really are underneath. Sinful, rebellious, guilty, under the judgment of God and helpless to save ourselves. Paul says this, he says, is the law contrary to the promises of God? No way. 
By no means. The law and the gospel work hand in hand. You can't separate them. The one needs the other. The other needs the other one. The law and the gospel do one job together. They point us to Jesus. They point us to our need for a Savior. They show us how utterly lost we are and how desperately we need a Savior. Imagine this with me, if you would. Imagine that tomorrow I call up David Lewin, our, our worship leader here, and I tell him, David, I've got some great news for you. Somebody from Whitefields wrote a check for $25,000 to pay your violations. And they took it to the Boulder County Court and they paid the price for you. He would say, what? This, that's ridiculous. He said, stop wasting my time. I gotta go. I didn't do any violations. I don't have any problems. But if, on the other hand, I would show up at David's house and I would say, David, look, here's the court summons. Here's the ticket for your violation. I'd say, David, you, you might not have realized what happened, but here's what happened. Yesterday, you, you were leaving church and you were driving through downtown Longmont on Main Street. And you didn't know it, David, but, but this weekend in Longmont, there was a festival for blind, deaf, elderly people. And there were just thousands of them. There were like 10,000 blind, deaf, elderly people downtown Longmont for a conference. And David, you just, you were driving 80 miles an hour down Main Street and you hit 67 deaf, blind, elderly people. And David says, I didn't see a thing. I know, David, neither did they. <laughs> you know? But the police called the church and they were looking for you and they gave you a ticket, David, and it was for $25,000 and they're gonna lock you up for life. But one of the brothers here at the church, was, he was here when, when the police came and he said, you know what? I can take care of this. So he got out his checkbook and he wrote a check and he paid the fine for you. Well, you know what David's attitude would be? No longer would he haughtily say, that's ridiculous, stop wasting my time. You know what he would say? He would say, who was that man who did that for me? Certainly I owe him a, a deep debt of gratitude. The law of God has a very important purpose and role in the gospel. The law of God reveals to us that we are sinners and that we desperately need a savior. Psalm 19 verse seven, it says this, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Think about that. This is the purpose of the law. The law of the Lord is perfect. It converts the soul. See, here's why. Because you cannot comprehend the gospel, the good news, until you first understood the dire, desperate reality of your human condition. Here's what John Stott said about the gospel and the law. He said this, we must never bypass the law and come straight to the gospel. To do so is to contradict the plan of God in biblical history. Because no one has ever appreciated the gospel until the law first revealed him to himself. It is only against the inky blackness of the night sky that the stars begin to appear. And it is only against the dark background of sin and judgment that the gospel shines forth. Imagine this with me if you would. You're on a 747 flying over the ocean, going to Europe or, or Hawaii or somewhere like that. And halfway through the flight, the pilot calls back to the flight attendants on the, their little phone there and he says, listen, I have some bad news. We're not gonna make it. There's a leak in our fuel tank. 
the plane's going down. We've got maybe an hour to go. So the flight attendant, she, uh, she puts down the phone and she wipes the sweat away from her, her brow and, and she tries to compose herself, you know, before facing the, uh, the passengers. She composes herself, pulls herself together a little bit, and she returns to the cabin and she gets on the, uh, the intercom. And with a big smile on her face, she says, Greetings, passengers. Could I interest anybody in a parachute today? Because, you know, parachutes are the latest in airline fashion. Everybody's wearing them. In fact, I'm going to wear one. Parachutes will make your flight more enjoyable. As you wear this parachute, it's going to feel like somebody's giving you a big hug all the time. And you're going to love it. And it's going to fill your life with joy and peace and lots of happiness. It's just going to make everything so much better. Would anybody like a parachute? And you know, most people just go back to what they were doing before. A few people raise their hand, yeah, sure, whatever, I'll try a parachute. You happen to be one of these people. You say, well, I'm not doing anything here anyway. She says, it's going to make it better, I believe her. So I'm going to take one of those parachutes and I'm going to try it on. So you take one of the parachutes, you give it a whirl. But after putting on this parachute uh, and sitting there in the airplane for a few minutes, you begin to notice that uh, some of the other passengers are, they're kind of pointing at you and snickering and laughing. And, uh, and before long, you begin to feel that this parachute is actually a bit uncomfortable, really. Your seat was already small, but now you've got this parachute on, right? And rather than making you feel peace and joy, uh, it's just making you feel really sweaty, right? And, and you're having trouble eating, you know, your little uh, airplane meal because your parachute's getting in the way. So after about 20 minutes of this, you stand up and you take the parachute off and you throw it at the flight attendant and you say, you know what, you lied to me. You said that this would make me more comfortable. It didn't. You said that this would make me happy and full of joy. And what do I get? I get people pointing at me and making fun of me. You said that this would make everything better. But you know what? It just made me sweaty and uncomfortable. But think about this. Is that not what happens so often these days? Because of the way that the gospel is often presented. That if you receive Jesus, then he will come into your life and, and babies will smile and you know, the sun will shine and money will fall from the sky and everything will be great and happy and, and you politicians will shake hands with each other and we'll all just live in this harmony and peace. But then people are like, yeah, great, I'll try that out. Only to say, you know what? This is too restrictive for me. I don't need this. But imagine another flight attendant in the same situation gets that same call from the pilot that the plane's going down, but she responds differently. She goes into the cabin and she gets on the intercom and says, attention passengers, stop what you're doing. I want your full attention because I've got something important to say. So listen up. The captain has informed me that we're losing fuel and we're going down. Now who wants a parachute? Well, suddenly everybody wants a parachute, right? Suddenly people are scrambling for parachutes. No one cares anymore about whether the remaining hour on the plane is going to be comfortable or not. That's the least of their concerns. They are making sure that their parachute is on right because they know that that is their salvation, right? They're making sure that that parachute fits. And they don't care about the, the one guy sitting two rows back who refuses to put on a parachute because he thinks this is all just a big conspiracy. The plane's not really going down. He's laughing at everybody. They don't care. That's not going to shake them. They don't care if they get a little sweaty in it. No, they're busy making sure their parachute is secure because they know that the plane's going down. Now that is the purpose of the law. 
It is the news that the plane is going down. The law is not the parachute that saves you. The law points you to your need for a parachute. Paul says that the law here, he says it, that the law cannot give life. The law doesn't give it. In fact, it does just the opposite. It, it diagnoses us with how deathly ill we are. It diagnoses us. It tells us that we're sick and how desperately we need the great physician to heal us with his healing touch. Trying to be justified by keeping the law is like trying to use a tool for something it was never meant to be used for. But if instead, if you will use the law for its intended purpose to reveal to you how helpless and how profoundly sinful you are, then the message of salvation by the grace of God will be exhilarating. It will be liberating to you. Unless you know how great your debt is, you will not comprehend how great the payment was that Christ paid for you on the cross. If you think that you are not all that bad, then the idea of grace will never change you but the law shows you who you really are so that you can see Christ for who he really is the one who obeyed the law on your behalf and then died on your behalf that you might receive the promise blessing of salvation but the question remains for those of us who have put our faith in Christ, who have let the law be a mentor that led us to Christ, and you have let the law have its proper effect on you, you've turned to Christ as your only hope for salvation, you receive the grace of God, the question is, what purpose does the law play in your life? What role does the law play in the gospel life? And we get to our third point, from slaves to sons, from verse 24. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offering, uh, offspring, heirs to the promise. Once the law has done its job in your life of revealing to you who you really are so that you can see Christ for who he really is, once you've put your faith in the promise of God to save you by his grace, then what role does the law have in your life? Throughout the New Testament, there's this terminology that's used. It's the terminology of being in Christ not only does he take you from being a slave to being a son, but he places you positionally in Christ. He puts you in Christ. The idea is that when you receive this promise of God, he makes you in Christ a new creation. The old passes away and everything becomes new. If you are in Christ, that means when God looks at you, he doesn't see you with all of your sins and failures. All he sees is Jesus with his righteousness. This morning before church, many of you ate very unhealthy things. How do I know that? Because I know. You ate, you ate fried things. You ate oily things. You ate greasy things. You ate produce that was genetically modified. You drank coffee that had caffeine in it. You drank whole milk. 
You ate donuts. They're full of gluten and rich sugars and rich flours. There's nothing good in there for you. You drank juice that's not even real juice. It's just high fructose corn syrup. We all know here in Boulder County that these are terrible, terrible things. They're things that must not be, okay? But right now as I look at you, I do not see any of those things. You know why? Because they are hidden in you. They have been absorbed by you. And when I look at you, the only thing I see are your lovely, smiling faces today. I don't see any of those terrible, terrible things that must not be because they are hidden in you. And that is what it means to be in Christ. Yes, you are sinful. Yes, you have fallen short of the glory of God. But if you are in Christ, then when God looks at you, he doesn't see any of those things. He sees Jesus, his beloved son, clothed in righteousness and glory. And he doesn't treat you anymore as a sinner or as a slave. He treats you as a son because when he looks at you, he sees his son, Jesus. And when that's happened, the, the law of God takes on a whole different role in your life. Here's what it becomes. The law of God becomes a playbook. It becomes a playbook that shows you how you can express your love to God through obedience to him. Think about this. I love my wife and I love my kids and I know that they love me. I am perfectly secure and confident in that relationship. That I love them, that they love me. It's a secure relationship. And so do you know what I do? I become a student of them. I become a student of my wife and a student of my kids so that I can learn what are the things that make them happy. What are the things that bring joy to their hearts? What are the things that they like? Why? So I can do those things for them. That's what happens when you're in love. You become a student of the person you are in love with so that you can learn what makes them happy. Because when I do things for people that I love, I don't do them in order to win their love and affection. I don't do them in order to make them love me because I already know that they love me. Our relationship is secure. So why do I do them? If it's not to win their love and affection, I do those things because I love them. Not so that they will love me, but because I love them. It's an expression of my love for them. It gives us a reason to celebrate the relationship that we share together. In the same way, think about it with God. Some people do things for God in order to make God love them. But other people do things for God because they love God. Which one are you? Are you trying to do things for God in order to win his affection? Or are you doing things that you do for God out of a celebration of the relationship that you share? What it comes down to is that two different people can be doing the same exact action for completely different reasons. Take an act of service, for example, or, or giving or, or obedience to God's word in some area of life. Two people can do the exact same thing. And for the one, it will be a burden, a heavy thing that they have to do for God because that's just how it is. But for the other person, that same exact thing could be the source of their greatest joy. 
because they do it for God, because they are secure in the love of God and the grace of God, and they do it because they love him, because they're secure in their position in Christ. So let me just sum it up like this. What is the purpose of the law in the gospel life? Number one, it constantly points us to Jesus, our Savior, that our hearts might be filled with appreciation for the love and the grace of God. And number two, it brings us to a playbook to express our love for God by doing things that bring joy to his heart. May that be true of us. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord, we thank you for your law in our lives. Lord, we thank you. Truly, we confess that your law is perfect. We look at it and we say, the law of the Lord is good and perfect. The precepts of the Lord, the commandments, they are good. But Lord, let us use them for their design purpose. May they be things which point us to you. And Lord, once we are secure in our relationship with you, may they be things by which we are able to express our love for you. And I pray that none of us here, that for us, Lord, that we would be secure in our relationship with you, in our position in Christ, and that, Lord, now obedience would be an act of love and joy, an expression of celebration of who we are in you and the relationship we have in you. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here today who is still trusting in their own righteousness, Lord, show them by your law that they desperately need a savior. Lord, if there's any of us who are Christians, yet we are trying to be perfected, we are trying to grow, we are still trying to earn your blessings by meriting them, Lord, I pray that you would break us of that today by your law. And I pray all that in Jesus' name, amen.